Welcome to this new series of Food Systems Podcasts from the Forum for the Future of Agriculture, talking about all things to do with a more resilient and sustainable food and agriculture system, which can also provide the climate solutions that we need. My name is Mark Titrington, and I will be your host for today's episode and indeed all forthcoming episodes in this series. We start today with a man who has probably forgotten more about agriculture policy than the rest of us will know in our lifetimes. He is, of course, Tassos Haniotis, former Director of Strategy and Policy at the European Commission's DG Agriculture. And Tassos, I know over the last couple of months since you stepped out and retired from the Commission, you've been uh, doing a lot of reflection. You had a presentation at the Bled Strategic Forum. Uh, You've posted a paper on LinkedIn um, looking at the food system and some of the challenges and opportunities perhaps that that you see in that. I want to start by asking you, Tassos, uh, in particular about Ukraine and the extent to which that conflict and indeed others has brought into focus and I think, as you've said, indeed accentuated some of the uncertainties that have impacted on agriculture markets since the late 2010s. Um, what, what do you see those uncertainties are and, and what do you think the impact has been? Um, first of all, thanks, Mark, for giving me the opportunity, uh, in a sense, to continue uh, things that I was uh, doing before and actually uh, put more uh, accent uh, to the need to address uh, simultaneously both the climate uh, change and the food security uh, challenges. In fact, uh, um, if one looks at uh, yesterday's agricultural outlook uh, just put out by my former colleagues in DG Agri, we see very clearly um, the combined impact of uh, bad weather and the drought that we had in Europe and also what the war in Ukraine has done in agricultural markets. But uh, these were not the only reasons that we had where we had. If we go back to last summer, the summer of uh, 21, we were coming out of uh, COVID uh, and the economic uh, crisis that it created in many parts of the world in a manner that was asymmetric. And that generated uh, upward pressures in prices, whether it was energy, metals and minerals, and to some extent to agriculture. And what happened with uh, the war in uh, Ukraine is that uh, all of these tensions that were there really increased much more uh, for three uh, reasons that are interrelated, if you want. First of all, there is a very big uncertainty about where in the short and medium term agricultural markets are going to stabilize. Um, This has a lot to do with the fact that uh, Russia and Ukraine combined are major players, not just in uh, some agricultural markets, but especially in wheat, which is so strategic for food security. Uh, The second uh, reason has to do with the energy link uh, of the war uh, in Ukraine and also with the provision uh, up until uh, recently and a very significant decline since the war of uh, energy uh, coming uh, from Russia, whether in the form of natural gas, which has the biggest impact, or in the form of uh, crude oil. And third, what a war does is it makes people rethink uh, the types of friendships, alliances, and overall relations they have in international relations. So what we have is three particular areas, agricultural markets, energy markets, and overall trade uh, and, uh, relations, which uh, generates 
all three an upward pressure on prices. And this, to some extent, I wouldn't call it a price premium because premium has a positive connotation, but there is a potential price top-up that could stay in the foreseeable uh, future in these markets. And this has an impact both in terms of the debate and the policy choices we have to make on climate action and in terms of the debate and the policy choices in terms of food security. Let's explore that um, a little bit further, Tassos. Um, you, you talked, particularly in the LinkedIn paper, about false di- dilemmas, and and you touched on on at least one of them there in terms of the, the policy choices that we have to make. Um, the first one is this is, is this tension between food security and, and climate action. Do you think as a consequence of those three interrelated uncertainties that you talked about earlier, um, that those tensions between food security and climate action become greater and harder to resolve, or is indeed it a false dilemma? Well, I think we need to draw a distinction between uh, tensions and uh, dilemmas, because tensions exist and we need to recognize them. The dilemma is created when we have the tendency to believe that it's either or. Mm. I try to put it more bluntly in a couple of speeches in the past that is like choosing between your stomach and your lungs. Some people told me, but why do you link climate change with lungs? Well, we just saw what happened with the fires and the, uh, the weather, uh, the heat in the summer to have this sense. And we also know what is happening in people's stomach where there is a food security issue. Now, if we have to address these tensions, we have to see how and where we can bring together the action for climate change and the action for food security. And I will start with the food security issue first because that's where I think we have some of the misconceptions. Food security is something that people feel not when we look for new definitions of food security, but when we look about what the existing definition is telling us. Food security is about food availability and food affordability. It's about the stomach and the pocket. And in both, we do have a serious problem this year. There are more and more people around the world that do have a problem of access to food. And there is a very significant problem of affordability to food, even in those parts of the world that produce food. So we have to recognize that there is a real worry in the average citizen right now about food security concerns. And especially this is even bigger in uh, the developing world, but it is becoming also an issue in our part of uh, the world. Does this mean that because we need to produce more and make food cheaper that we're going to hurt actions on climate change. That's where I believe we are uh, about sometimes to raise false dilemmas because the way to actually be able to produce more does not mean that this has to be done in a manner that is less sustainable than today. On the contrary, it means that it has to be done in a manner that is more sustainable today. Now, in the manner by which I interpret uh, things, and I'm pretty sure not everybody sees it the same way, but I'm an economist by training, 
what we have to do is look at what is actually in affecting the marginal cost of producing food. Part of it is the fact that we have to take measures that are more friendly to the environment and cost more. Part of it has to do with the fact that a lot of factors that affect the cost of production in agriculture right now are exogenous to agriculture, and we don't have the policy tools to address them. Well, both of them indicate to me one thing. We have to increase productivity. And increasing productivity does not mean repeating the mistakes of the past and focusing only on the economic efficiency of what we do. It means combining together economic and environmental efficiency. And if we want to look not at some uh, theoretical uh, debate on the seventh cloud of theoretical abstraction, but what is really happening on the ground, we're going to see that there are practices throughout the full spectrum from organic and agroecology to precision farming that demonstrate exactly this, that we can increase economic and environmental efficiency at the same time. But where we have failed is in linking these experiences together and better communicating this. The, the, the communication point is an interesting one, Tassas, because when, when you explain that as clearly and articulately as you do, um, it seems obvious. And yet um, that that point doesn't land with all stakeholders. Some see um, environmental protection as being a cost on their business, particularly for, for some in the farming community, while those in the environmental um, uh, organizations um, would argue that the drive for productivity undermines the um, the environment. Um, and yet you've just made a very clear case there that these two things go together. Where are we failing, in your view? Uh, I've, I've pointed uh, to this failure in the past also several times. I think it has to do with the fact that uh, Unlike what people in uh, my generation used to do, where we used to dirty our hands with data and analysis of data before we moved in uh, debating policy options, sometimes nowadays we start with uh, policy options, idealizing the pros and uh, minimizing the cons of these options without really looking at the underlying uh, evidence. And I will bring you... An example of what uh, my uh, former colleagues, uh, and it sounds strange to talk about former, but anyway, their former colleagues in the Joint Research Center have done in uh, helping for the preparation of the strategic plans of the member states. They did a very thorough literature review of best practices and made it available to member states. I think it's also available to the wider public right now. And what we get out of this? What we get out of this is that the same practice has very different impacts depending on the soil condition, on the overall uh, environment, on the management skill of farmers, on the presence or absence of a farm advisory system. So if we failed really to communicate, is because in our policy debate, our starting point has not been to identify what is the problem, what are the potential options and weigh the pros and cons and try to find a combination of economic, environmental and social uh, aspects of sustainability, which, by the way, the weight we should put is going to be very different in different regions, even within a member state, let alone across member states. But we started with general ideas 
that thought we considered as being applicable everywhere in the same way. Mm-hmm. And that, in my view, had distorted the debate for quite some time, uh, especially in terms of the potential policy options mm-hmm. uh, we could have. Without wishing to, to lead you in any way, Tassos, I mean, in the LinkedIn paper that you published, um, you, you argued that environmental problems are a failure of both public policies as well as private markets. Is is that what you're driving at in 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 your previous response? And is, would you elaborate on that in, in any way? Yeah, uh, it's exactly that. In fact, uh, you know, I believe that... Uh, Markets provide extremely important signals that we should not uh, ignore. But markets are not perfect. They have their failures. And one of the biggest failures I have had over the years is exactly inaccurately reflecting the environmental footprint of our practices. And that's not an agricultural issue. It's an issue that affects all uh, human uh, activities from the most basic needs we have in food, in energy, in shelter and in transport to the luxury items of our behavior. The way to address uh, this failure is by uh, having policies that actually try to correct market failures. Now, if public policies had been successful in doing that, then we wouldn't be debating about the environmental problems we face today because we would have solved with public policies these problems. So there is an issue there, both in terms of how markets fail to accurately reflect in their price mechanism what is really happening throughout the sustainability aspects of our behavior, but we also have to look at what our policies have done and have not done so far. But again, we shouldn't minimize and oversimplify the debate. I mean, our starting point should be that when it comes to European agriculture, and also when it comes to European transport and many other aspects of our industry, Mm. Europe has done very significant steps in reducing emissions. Mm. We're not where we want to be, and we have to do much more. But what have we learned from what we have done so far? Now, if we minimize the progress we have made, we will not even derive the most appropriate uh, lesson. And I think that has partly to do with the fact that if you look at the the political spectrum, when you have opinions that consider that everything that is private is the big driver of what we have to do, and we should leave the public out, to the other extreme that it's only through the public policies that we have to actually solve the problems, and the private is a failure. I believe that we need both, and we need to combine both, and we need to be very clear about what the private and the public uh, sector can do in synergies, but also where there are some tensions that have to be addressed. Let me just take you um, another dimension of that, if, if, if I may, Tassos. Um, the, the challenge of food security, the challenge of environmental security, the, the challenge of climate action, these are global problems. Um, often we look for local solutions with, within those. Um, in your view, are local solutions necessary, but are they likely to be sufficient to tackle the challenges that we face, which are certainly regional and almost uh, definitely global? Uh, you put it more correctly, maybe than when I put it in the linked uh, item. They're necessary, but not sufficient. I mean, to me, it's evident that we need to focus more on local solutions because part of what they do is 
they reintroduced uh, an element of diversity that we're about to lose, not only in biodiversity, but also cultural diversity, other aspects that are pretty necessary. But we shouldn't expect uh, miracles. It's one thing to focus on a local solution where you have a big uh, city with a strong demand, let's say, for organic products, or where, where you have the infrastructure that allows short supply chains to develop. And it's a completely different thing to look for a local solution in areas of the world, and I'm not talking only talking about Europe here or the European Union, mm. where you do have a very significant uh, food uh, deficit. My starting point is that both climate change and also food security are global problems. And we need to see the big picture when we try to apply also uh, the local uh, solutions. And I think this is extremely important because one of the mistakes we often do is that we say we don't have a food security problem in the European Union. What we should say is actually we don't have a food deficit problem in the European solution. There is no food security issue at the level of a region. It's a global issue. Because if you have a very significant deficit in some parts of the world, you're going to feel it in all parts of the world through the price mechanism and the trade uh, flows. And if we look at developments in Africa and in parts of Asia, we very clearly see uh, that we do have a very significant increase in food deficits in parts of the world. And that has to be addressed at the global level with combined efforts. And uh, we should be very... Uh, clearly aware of what are the possibilities and the very significant benefits we can get with certain local solutions, but what are the limitations of only local solutions, uh, only local solutions approach. Tassos, I want to um, bring us towards the end of this discussion now and maybe take us back to where you began at the beginning with with the uncertainties um, caused by the conflict in Ukraine, the rising energy um, prices, the the rethinking of some of the relationships and partnerships that um, the world has, in many ways, depended on in the in the post war period. Um, you've got extensive experience over thirty years of working in the European Commission. When when you stand back and you look at those uncertainties, when you look at the dilemmas that we've been discussing this morning. Um, what gives you the biggest cause for concern out of them all in terms of achieving a more resilient and sustainable food and agriculture system? And and to perhaps finish on a positive note, if that's possible, where do you see the, the biggest cause for optimism? I would say clearly that the biggest concern I have is that we have war in uh, on European soil I mean, throughout my career in uh, my life. Uh, there has been war in many parts of the world, sometimes exactly because it was not that close to our neighborhood, although being Greek, uh, there has always been something close to my uh, home uh, neighborhood. I mean, we have, we had the tendency to underestimate maybe uh, the, the suffering of others. What this war, and especially uh, the cynicism and the brutality of uh, this war has brought, 
to us so closely, especially because of the manner by which social media uh, communicate everything that is happening directly right now, is something uh, that changes completely uh, the fundamental basis of what we assumed. I mean, it's one thing to talk about... Uh, we use the term war for trade conflicts and tensions among major partners for trivial issues. What we have here is massive loss of human life, destruction of infrastructure, uncertainty about where people are going to go. You look into agricultural situation in Ukraine, I mean, uh, what will happen in the f- harvest in the areas now that there is bombing? What will happen in planting? What is happening in the fertilizer uh, markets? Uh, what will happen next year, which might even be more uh, challenging than this year? This is the uh, biggest concern because all the fundamental elements and aspects that we took for granted in the post-war uh, situation, including the respect of frontiers and of international rules have been very severely challenged. And this requires a very firm, a very uh, clear answer that is going to have certain uh, costs in the short and medium term. But these are costs that we have to bear if we really want to make sure that the world tomorrow after the situation is safer. So that's the big uh, concern. Now, on the optimistic side, if you want, and the positive side, it is with crises like that that you also see not only the ugly, but the positive face of human behavior. The manner by which people uh, generate more solidarity among themselves, the manner by which they innovate, the manner by which uh, when faced with this dilemma, death or life, they massively, although unfortunately don't uh, uniformly, go for life. And also, there is another element uh, that uh, this situation is doing. It brings into the forefront the need to address climate and food security in a manner that is potentially uh, complementary. And that's where uh, I hope to be able to continue putting my energy uh, in the years to come. Well, Tassos, we uh, we hope that as as well. Your uh, experience is invaluable in these uh, challenging times. Very much appreciate you spending time with us this morning and joining this first episode of the new series of Food Systems Podcast. We wish you every success. Thank you indeed for joining us. Uh, we look forward to seeing you on the next edition of the Food Systems Podcast from the Forum for the Future of Agriculture.